This is Rogier van den Brink. In this podcast, I will be talking to Han van Dijk. He and his wife, Miriam de Bruin, have over three decades of research experience with pastoralists in the Sahel. And when I say experience with pastoralists, you can take this very literally. In the early 1990s, they actually lived and moved around with the Fulani community for two years. And they have stayed in touch with that community until today. So who better to explain than Han van Dijk why the so peaceful Sahel of the 1980s turned into the latest hotbed of violence along ethnic fault lines? I wanted to add the adjective religious to fault lines, but religion has actually very little to do with their origins. The origins of the fault lines are political, economic and social. They run between pastoralists and farmers, with both groups often practicing Islam. Han describes the key problem and how it worsened over time, the relentless marginalization and discrimination that the already ultra-poor pastoralists, once the rulers of the Sahel, have had to endure at the hand of governments and, yes, donor-funded development projects. The music is, as in all the podcasts in this series on agriculture and the Sahel, by Anansi Sisse, a troubadour from Mali. When I got in touch with him to ask him permission to use his music, he immediately went into the studio and recorded a song especially for this podcast. Anansi and several other of his musician friends were hit by a double whammy. The political violence, the jihadists robbed him of all his equipment, including his beloved guitar, and the economic recession caused by the pandemic. Please support them. At the time when we were doing the research, the Duenza district was the poorest in the fifth region of, uh, of Mali. And the fifth region of Mali was the poorest in, uh, in Mali itself. Mm-hmm. So we were really in the, in the poorest of the poorest areas. And people suffered tremendously from the droughts in the 80s. They lost 90% of their uh, livestock, which is, has uh, disappeared. And I literally encountered a boy of 17 year olds, which was this high because he was so stunted because of malnutrition. Child mortality was 40%. Mm. And I think this hasn't changed. The first year we were in this camp, four children were born. And at the end of the year, only three, only one was alive. The other three died. So it's, it was really, a uh, tough situation and we had to supply food to these people to be able to do our research there. I did the research together with my wife, Miriam de Bruin. And over all these decades we have 
remained involved with these people. Um, and we have a herd of cattle there, which is herded by one of our informants, we'll, with whom we still have contact. Uh, because we now have mobile phones and all these things. Uh, but in the 90s, you had to drive 300 kilometers, kilometers for, the next, for the nearest landline from that area. Normally they go to, uh, to a, a number of uh, Dogon villages which are near the Burkina Bay border mm -hmm. uh, where they had uh, old relations uh, already dating from the 19th century where they could also uh, exchange their milk for, for, for food with the, with the Dogon population. Yeah, this came to an end when, the, uh, when this Muslim extremist took over uh, and then gradually tensions developed between Dogon and Fulani in this area and they were not addressed by the government uh, and, and there is even a group, um, an extremist group called in the area which is called Katiba Serma uh, and I know also that uh, in, in French Press reports, Serma, the forest of Serma, is mentioned as one of the core areas of mm -hmm. uh, jihadism in the area. And they also bombed uh, a camp of uh, suspected jihadists around eight kilometers from the place where we did the research. Mm. And just recently, uh, extremists attacked uh, a camp of um, the Malian army near Mondoro and Bulukesi, which is closer to the Burkina Bay border. And the, the, the extremists butchered around 40 uh, troops of the Malian army in this area. So it's really a, a, a hotspot. back in time. No? So you were describing the relationships between the Dogon, the farmers, yeah. and the Fulani, the herders. So if in your mind you had to retell the story, how it used to be, and then how <coughs> it de gradually developed or didn't develop well, to where I mean, we are now. Yeah, and you couldn't say there were no <coughs> conflicts in the past, right. Yeah, because there were tensions, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were manageable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and when there was uh, things going on, there would be kind of uh, negotiation between representatives of the herders and, and, and the Dogon villages. What were the conflicts about usually? Um, water, uh, crop damage, and those kind of things. Um, and, and, and yeah, age-old tensions about, yeah, you know, political tensions because the, 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 the Fulani made slaves among the Dogon and, uh, and all, this, uh, all this stuff. Uh, which is still very much alive in the memory of people. 
But since they were now part of the modern state, uh, they, 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 they collaborated. And also these tensions were not all year. I mean, there were certain seasons when you don't have these conflicts about water and crops. Uh, because then the Fulani are able to get water from uh, areas where the Dogon are not, mm. yeah, uh, in the bush where yeah. there are water places. So, uh, so, but I always wondered, because of the bad position of the, the Fulani herders, why they were not, I mean, they were the ones ruling the area uh, in the 19th century before French colonization. Mm -hmm. And they were completely powerless uh, in the, in, in, at the time when we were doing the research. And they were completely marginalized politically, uh, socially, uh, stigmatized, etc. Even by their own political elites who were in Boney and in other places. Uh, How do you mean by their own political elites? They were exploiting them. And, and, and for example, the, the livestock service opened uh, a controlled pasture area uh, near uh, the place where we were doing the research, equipped with a pump to pump up water during the dry season, which was completely uh, appropriated by the, by the chief. And in the, during the drought of 85, uh, this chief uh, was paid by a Tuareg chief who was further up north to uh, allow all the cattle of the Tuareg chief on this controlled pasture area, which meant that the local people were driven away and couldn't have access to this pasture. And they lost the cattle and not the Tuareg chief and not the Fulani chief. Hmm. Yeah? So this development initiative was... So the Fulani chief basically did something very detrimental to his own people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 uh, Yes, because he appropriated this pasture area for his personal use, which is completely against uh, Fulani custom, you could say, because pastures should be accessible for everybody. Yeah. By the way, this is one of the points that uh, jihadists now emphasize, that all resources are given by God, mm. yeah, and that everybody should have access. And in, in that time, I always wondered why do these people not revolt mm. against the government? Mm. Because they, everything, every development initiative, everything was marginalizing them further instead of helping them. Yeah, even, the, even the interventions of the livestock service. When the livestock service uh, drilled a well, there were always the Dogon farmers who settled around the well to open fields so that the, uh, so that the Fulani didn't have access to the, to the well, you know? And, and, they, and the livestock service allowed that. Because the people in the livestock service were uh, basically people from sedentary groups, not from the pastoralists. Mm. Yeah? So there was no representative of these people at any level of government or in a government service or whatever. Including in the livestock service? Including in the livestock service, yeah. With the people who knew about livestock yeah. being the Yeah, yeah, land. yeah, yeah.
crazy situation because the local representative of the livestock service was a dogon hmm. from a neighboring village and, and not from uh, Fulani origin. Was this also because, uh, apart from the history, in which maybe you could say the farmers are now having their shot at political power? Yeah. But is there also something about this idea that this pastoralism is just doomed to wither away? That it's not a that it's was a, that it's a way of producing livestock that isn't really modern. And that that was the uh, the idea in that in that time, and uh, someone gave me government documents, mm -hmm. in which it was also explicitly stated uh, after the droughts. They're now on their back. We should sanitarize them, settle them. Settle them. Uh, we can now control them, etc., uh, etc. Et No, for example, the fact that they were uh, systematically fined by the Forest Service. And, I mean, they need to cut branches from trees to construct their huts. They uh, cut branches to feed their uh, cattle in the, during the dry season. Uh, they collect uh, leaves of baobabs, uh, all these th things. They, they rely a lot on, on, on tree resources, much more than we, than we know, and that this should be investigated further. But every time the Forest Service would come, and I mean, they can only give a fine when you're caught in the act. But what they did was they say, okay, this camp, you pay 200,000 and this camp pay 300,000. So they were collecting kind of taxes from the people. Their chief, uh, exploited them because I mean there was a their, their own chief their own chief mm. yeah there was a tree planting program uh, which was near the camp where we were staying and these trees had to be watered it was a useless tree prosopis which is consuming too much water and doesn't have any local use but uh, there was a tree planting uh, program so they had to water the trees and the organization who came with the trees said okay but you will get food aid for it yeah, food and uh, but the chief took all the food aid and had the people water the trees. Hmm. Uh, when there was food aid and there was, uh, we were there, uh, uh, we were there personally. Uh, there was food aid uh, arriving in Boney in 1990 because there was a, a drought. And when it arrived at the local camp, it was only a few kilos in a, in a big sack of 100 kilos, etc. So it was already emptied before it arrived at the, at the place where it should be distributed. Every time they need to arrange something with the government. They need to pass to the chief or someone of the family of the chief and they have to pay. These people don't do anything for nothing. Every time a son of the chief is visiting the camp, they have to slaughter a goat to honor. I mean, we did a tour with a, uh, um, 
over all these camps with a brother of the chief. Every night a goat was slaughtered. Yeah? And sometimes even uh, a bull. Yeah? And we couldn't eat everything, but it was kind of compulsory. And we said, we don't want that. No, no, no. And, and so even if people have only 15 goats, they are obliged to, to slaughter a goat, which is uh, an enormous asset for people who have so little. They had to pay off the headmaster of the school for not sending their children to school. They didn't want their children to go to school because then they would not be proper herders in the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. But for every child not in school, they had to pay 17,500 uh, CFA, which is approximately 30 euros a year. And I mean, and I would not send my child to that school because they wouldn't learn anything there anyway. Mm. I and mean, in the middle of the year, they would be yanked away anyway, because they would move. Yeah, no. yeah. And there was no provision. Uh, there was a, I mean, some NGO educated someone to be a kind of a medical aid worker. But this guy started to give injections uh, without being uh, properly trained for it. So there were a lot of children which had a, a, a lame leg because he took the, he, 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 he managed to, to hit uh, a nerve in the, in the leg. So uh, it was... But so access to health services, in no. how, how did that go? Uh, but if they would uh, present themselves in a local clinic, they would, they would be helped or not? Or no, I mean, they would be helped after being uh, insulted first. So that wasn't really encouraging. Mm -hmm. We were regularly taking people to... Uh, to uh, clinics and uh, and, uh, and the hospital, but the first medical uh, post was at 30 kilometers. So if you don't have a car, mm -hmm. you can't go there. You could hire the car of the chief, but then you would have to pay another goat. Uh, <laughs> no, 30,000, 50,000 CFA for the so-called fuel. <coughs> um, in the end, we were taking people to the hospital. But then even the, the medical personnel even started insulting us. Because you were taking them. We were taking them and they said, you're living with these beasts, these savages in the bush, and you have become like them and, uh, and all these things. Why do, do you take these people here? We don't want them and uh, all, this, all this, these things. Would you say what you found is representative for yeah. the region? Yeah. For all these camps, we, we, we visited many other camps during our stay. In Mali? In Mali. And we everywhere we encountered the same situation. And how about the other countries? Burkina, Niger, Chad? Um, well, we did later we did research in Chad, but then in farming villages, but also in camps of Arab nomads this time. The same thing. I mean, in, in, in Chad, we found a village and we had a nutritionist with us, a local nutritionist, and she found 
60% of the children were stunted in a certain village. Uh, of the under fives, and well, uh, horrible. And we did our own countings, our own interviews with women, how many children died, and we came around 40% child mortality. This is confirmed by demographic research from the 1980s by a British uh, group of researchers. And the funny thing was that they concluded that the, 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 the background mortality was so high that you couldn't see the influence of a drought. So the, 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 the pressure of disease was so high on, the, on these children yeah, that, that you couldn't see the effect of drought on the mortality figures, which was 40-45% for the, all the under fives. This was among the Tuareg, among the Fulani, among the former slaves. And you would say caused by... Diarrhea, all kinds of... health issues. And also low birth weight because most of the women were malnourished. Do you think this has always been like this or this was recent? Um, I think that the situation deteriorated from the 1950s onwards. There was a series of droughts starting in the 60s uh, and, and uh, in the 70s and 80s which devastated uh, a lot. But because they were not in charge of their own existence because of all these other factors, they were not able to have access to better food during these droughts. Mm -hmm. yeah? That's why they lost all their livestock. That's why they became malnourished. That's why, etc., etc. And this has certainly not improved uh, with uh, over time. Um, because when you go there now and you go into a village or a camp, it's still the same situation. There's still no healthcare, still etc. Uh, and the government did not invest in these areas, in these remote areas. And they, they, they bring schools to villages of sedentary people. Yeah, and they bring uh, uh, health posts to, people, to areas where there are uh, sedentary people but not to people uh, who are mobile or camping around these villages. And I mean, and, and they did not have confidence in these medical uh, health work, these health workers as well, because they were insulting them. Yeah, mm -hmm. like you are savages and, uh, and all these other things. Yeah? And when they didn't bring money, the doctor wouldn't treat them. So your child would die. I mean, and he just, he just would refuse a child with uh, malaria, high fever, no money, okay, go. That's against uh, Hippocrates' uh, uh, oath. But now a lot of these um, programs, whether it's food aid or health care or education, they were financed by donors, no? Yeah. So, and they had somebody like you who could tell them, listen, yeah. I'm doing research, I'm finding this. Now, just one example. This controlled pasture area yeah. was evaluated by a French agency yeah. with a very expensive, uh, by a very expensive anthropologist, yeah. whom I know personally. Yeah. And he described this controlled pasture project as a tremendous success, which showed how local leadership uh, could uh, help uh, Pastoralists uh, onwards in the world. 
I think he only talked with the chief or something like that, who was very well versed in the in the new speak of donors and and talked. And the chief was the one who had made out like a bandit. Basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he was the bandit. He was the bad guy in this story. He appropriated this controlled pasture area for his own benefit, mm -hmm. and and even invited Tuareg chiefs to pasture their animals when there was a drought. So, uh, so these these evaluations or these perspective of donors on what has been achieved is uh, is not going into depth or, and not going into what is really going on on the ground. And basically, all this and and that's that's also if you if you do a, a survey of all the projects done for pastoralism or livestock or whatever throughout the Sahel, you see that none of these projects has ever benefited the people who were herding the cattle. But that's amazing. Yeah, but it, it, it is a fact. Over and, the and years. Yeah, yeah, and, and all my colleagues who are in the same type of research agree with that. And all these projects to have pastures managed, to have uh, this uh, uh, water, uh, new wells dug, yeah. and all these things, they amount to nothing. They are not benefiting the pastoralists. This livestock service was financed with a loan of World Bank. Ja? Office de développement de l'élevage dans la région de Mopti. Mm. It should be somewhere in the archives of World Bank. So what you must know, and what does Case the Hunt think about this? Case, Case would agree with, him, with me. And he, is, he has put out this report on, uh, on the future of pastoralism, uh, etc. And he's very worried as well. And what basically what most of these projects were doing were promoting farmers' interests, restricting mobility of pastoralists. If you dig wells, you need to empower people to manage these wells. Yeah? But if you leave it open as a kind of common property, then the strongest are, are going to, to appropriate the well. Let me correct you there, not common property, open access. Open access, okay. <laughs> Let, let's call it open access. Yeah. Yeah? But I mean, this is what happened. And it was very naive to think that if you dig wells, that you would promote pastoral interests. Mm. And in the, the east of Niger, the, they also did that. And then it appeared that not the Fulani were profiting, who were, who were the, the target population, but the Tubu from the north, who were armed. And they were shooting uh, at, the, at, the, at the Fulani, and the Fulani had to retreat. Mm. So what you leave then is the, 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 the how do you call it? The yeah, I mean, the, the strongest is surviving and not the ones you were targeting to help uh, and all these things. Uh, the thing is that there is serious 
discussion about, okay, how should we deal with pastoralism? Uh, however, um, ingrained interests in governments, yeah, but, yeah. but also in institutions like World Bank. I don't want to, yeah. yeah, I mean, there is something working against uh, the real interest of pastoralism within these institutions. If there has a choice to be made, we go left or right, they always take the wrong turn, somehow. Is it also to do with governments are our clients, so if they don't want it, then it's yeah, 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 and, and there are these beautiful policies. The African Union has a charter on, on, uh, on pastoralism, which says that pastoralism should be, pastoralists should be given access and should be able to cross borders and all those things. ECOWAS has the same thing. But in reality, the governments don't apply these things. No. Yeah, and, and, and this, this is all beautiful and, and you, you almost start crying when you, when you read it. Uh, um, but in reality, joy. yes, yeah. yeah. But in reality, it's 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 different. I mean, Benin is now closing its border for Fulani pastoralists. Guinea uh, last year closed its border for pastoralists from Mali who are using the pastures in Guinea in the, during the dry season. In but the Guinea is majority Fulani. No? Yes, but not in charge of the government. The, and because the government in Guinea is traditionally non-Fulani and they and on the Sekouture, he, he killed almost 500,000 Fulani during his, uh, his presidency. Anyway, Guinea closed the border and the Malian government was not protesting. And there were suddenly two million head of cattle extra on the Malian side of the border where I was at the time. And the local uh, administrators were not even informed by the Malian government about this. So we were telling a local sous-préfet that this was going on and he looked at us. He said, I don't know anything about this. So there's also, so the Malian government doesn't care about its own Fulani. Right. Yeah? Uh, and it allows now in the south of Mali local communities are imposing taxes on Fulani that pass with the herd, they have to pay 15,000 CFA to pass the village territory. The Fulani go to the government, to the administrator, to the prefet, to protest. Yeah. And the prefet says, I can't do anything. I can't do anything against the will of the people. Yeah. And this is illegal taxing. Yeah. Yeah? And I've seen, I've seen even people uh, with uh, receipts for this. So that they could prove that they passed and didn't have to pay another time. For another village. Yeah. There is, I have seen uh, a handwritten document of a mayor somewhere in central Mali who basically says that all the Fulani have to go from the village territory. They are now banned because they belong to uh, Muslim extremist groups. about the inequality yeah. of the ownership of the herd. So yeah. that's another important yeah. yeah. storyline. Yeah. No? Yeah. Can you tell that, that story? Well, at the time when we were doing the research, we the, 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 there was, uh, I think, uh, eight camps of Fulani, 600 people approximately. Two owners were owning more than half 
of the herd. The rest owned nothing. Almost. But the owners were still Fulani. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, I remember the 23rd of June. Yeah. We were sitting outside our hut. It was a uh, Tabaski uh, feast. Uh, and uh, then an enormous number of herds, all accompanied by two herders, all of the same size, entered the area. And the Fulani, oh, these are our former animals, because they've all been bought by people during the drought, and now they're coming back. And they are eating. And this is the drought of the mid 80s. Mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And now they're eating our pastures, mm -hmm. and we can't do anything about it. Hmm. Yeah? So they were disowned. And other people were owning now the cattle and hiring their children, their sons, to, uh, to, uh, to herd this cattle. Um, you could call this proletarization. I also heard it wasn't just sort of ownership inequality rising within the Fulani, but that urban elites would sort of start investing in herds yeah. and then giving them in, uh, in the hands to of the Fulani because to herd. Because the Fulanis are the best herders. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go now to the south of Mali, you will find that a lot of farmers own small herds, 20, 30 animals. You have urban owners who own a lot of animals. And they all hire young Fulani to herd these uh, herds. And such a herder, we, uh, I recently interviewed some of them in, uh, in the south of Mali. He gets uh, 20 22 euros a month. You uh, didn't get paid on the health of the animals or the, no, no, no. the calves or something? No, no, he has four children, a wife. He's not allowed to milk the cows. And, and he is there. If you give this guy a Kalashnikov and 50,000 CFA, 75 euros a month, he, I mean, he's much better off. And that's what the Muslim extremists are doing now. negotiating power of the Fulani has hit rock bottom. Rock bottom, yes. So that they couldn't even come yeah. to some sort of sharecropping arrangement no, or no, anything no. like that. This is all documented. There's a huge literature on this. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, it's not only me who has been uh, working on this. There are many other publications on how this, this whole system functions. It's completely neglected by institutions. Apparently. Like the World Bank. <laughs> also, my own government, the governments in the region, they all neglect this, this, ki this kind of evidence that things are going wrong. Yeah, and Which started to appear, this evidence became available to us when? Uh, even during the 1980s, yeah. 90s. I mean, I, I've, I've so this list of publications who are all in the same direction, it's very consistent as well. Right. Yeah. And, and what my colleagues produced in other countries is also very consistent.
Well, the story is that uh, when the, these Muslim extremists took over in northern central Mali, the government fell away, basically. So there was no longer a monopoly on violence. And so they became kind of uh, in between these Muslim extremists, which were of mainly of Tuareg Arab origin and not of Fulani origin. And on the one hand, and on the other side, the government and, and the sedentary groups who, are, who were not amused by the presence of these uh, external, uh, by these Tuareg and uh, etc. And the Tuareg are more, they're more the ones crossed across the Sahara. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they, so they would be very well linked to the Libyan situation. The, 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 that's where they got their weaponry from right. after the fall of Gaddafi. The, the Malian government was too weak to control the situation. So there was a total collapse of state power there. What uh, year are we talking about? 2012. And beginning of 2013, the French intervened mm -hmm. to ch chase away these Muslims. And uh, they succeeded, of course, uh, with modern weaponry. And the idea was to restore government authority. But they concentrated on the north of Mali, mainly on uh, Gao, Timbuktu, Kidal, the, the three northern region, and not on the Mopti area, where we are now talking about. And government authority was not restored, so it became a kind of uh, uh, yeah, wild west uh, with bandits, uh, remnants of uh, extremist groups who were there. There were uh, local militias emerging of uh, farming communities and so on and so on. The Fulani felt threatened. Uh, as I told you, uh, we had a PhD student in the area and my wife made regular visits to, to Mali to, uh, to do the supervision. And the situation was very worrying because they were feeling under threat and they wanted to uh, be protected. So um, my wife and this PhD student, they tried to mediate between them and the government so that the government would take action to have military presence in the area. They approached the un United, the force of the United Nations, MINUSMA, who is also in the area but not having patrolling in the area but in the north. They approached the European Union and all these in, uh, institutions. And recently, uh, following our research, we approached again MINUSMA and all these institutions. And they basically said, we can't do anything. MINUSMA said, okay, if we want to do anything, we have to change mandate. We'll take half a year, it has to go to New York and all these things. Uh, and then- Do you remember what mandate needed to be changed? Yeah, the, the area where they would operate. Yeah. Yeah, and also the level of uh, force they were allowed to use. They were peacekeeping, not peace enforcing. Anyway, the situation didn't improve. And then at a certain point they decided, okay, we have to arm ourselves. Yeah, and we have even uh, videos of local militias and they were not uh, turning to these extremist groups, they were just self-defense groups. And they were training young people and they sent some of their young people to 
uh, a Muslim extremist group to receive training so that they could do the training amongst themselves. But they re uh, withdraw their young people from these Muslim extremist groups because they were not willing to give in to all these new ideologies yet. Mm. Yeah. And, but they found out uh, that this didn't offer protection. And despite the fact that they were not seeking alliances with these extremists, they were accused of being extremists. They were constantly being harassed by when they went to town where the government troops were there, they were being arrested, they were uh, searched for weapons and, and all these things. Uh, we personally uh, sent at one point 300,000 CFA to, to, to have our main informant release who was arrested by the, by the, by the, by the government. What year are you talking about? 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. So gradually this whole situation deteriorated yeah. Yeah, and this enabled these Muslim extremists to get a foothold there yeah. because they were making use of, let's say, the, 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 the justified anxiety of people okay. of being targeted. Yeah? And, 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 and the jihadists were what? ISIS, Al-Qaeda? No, they were uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Acme, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Uh, and those kind of, uh, and, and the, the, the many Mujao, the movement, etc. Uh, but that doesn't, is not so important. The importance is that these, the, there were new networks coming in the area. And these networks extended to the Middle East and to Afghanistan and to Pakistan, etc. Weren't these networks a bit uh, the old international trading routes? Also, the, the ones that used to carry salt. And yeah, yeah, they they they, and they 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 extended into Libya and yeah, all the yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, if you if you make the maps, you you will see the old trade routes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and the reaction of the government and also the French military forces was, okay, we're going to attack them because they are now militants, jihadists, etc. And with these attacks, they unfortunately... In them, they now included the Fulani, who... Yeah, no, but the Fulani were being... Collaborators. Yeah, no, they were, no, they were suspected jihadists. Suspected. Yeah. So, all of a sudden, uh, the government started to ban motorbikes. Yeah, and, and what they also did was, if there was a Fulani on a motorbike, you can recognize them by their uh, clothes. They started to shoot already. Hmm. Uh, there were, and local sanitary groups, also feeling unsafe, started to organize their local militias. And these local militias started to attack Fulani settlements. And the Fulani felt unsafer and unsafer, so they said, okay, we all organize. Uh, and, and how to organize, they didn't have the experience, but these extremist groups, they had experience of how to organize. So they gradually became into the orbit of these Muslim extremists. And they say Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb reached out to the Fulanis or through to the Tuareg? Also to the Tuareg. Because anybody who... Yeah, anybody. Because the, 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 the leaders, the so-called leaders, is now the, the, big, uh, the big guy is uh, Tuareg, Iyad Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. 
But his second in command is a Fulani, Hamadou Kufa, who is a local mm -hmm. preacher, who, is, who started to preach the Jihad somewhere in 2014. Mm -hmm. yeah, and soon got a whole lot of people following him. And by that time, small groups of young people started to emerge in the inner delta of the Niger, in the area where we were doing the research, of young people who started to organize their own jihadist groups, mm. inspired by these preachers and yeah. having connections with, this, uh, um, with these uh, Muslim extremists. Tuareg are the desert nomads who are in the in the mainly in the Sahara, yeah. and in and uh, there are also groups of Arabs there and they're more the Arab looking also. Yeah, 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 yeah. They are light light skinned. Yeah, nice. and in Chad and in Libya you also have uh, Tubu who are also nomads, which are of African origin, not of Berber or uh, Arab origin, mm -hmm. because the Tuareg are Berbers uh, originally. Uh, originating from northern Africa. And the Fulani have always been in the uh, south of the Sahara, in the Sahel. The Sahara. Yeah. And they are from, from Senegal and Mauritania towards, even they're even now in Ethiopia. They're everywhere. And they're also in the coastal countries mm. present. Uh, in Sierra Leone, in Guinea, in uh, Liberia, in Côte d'Ivoire, Ghana. Uh, a large Fulani population in Nigeria as well. So they're present in almost 20 countries. Yeah. And they're in every country they are a minority, except for Guinea, but they are not in power, in power there. And they're always the second or the third group in size in these countries. Yeah. yeah? So it is a considerable minority. Yes, yes. Yeah. And therefore, if, if you have in all these countries a population group which is marginalized and discriminated to such an extent that it leads to violent conflict, if you have that in 20 countries. Behold when they unite. Behold when they unite. I know that, I mean, we are now part of, of, of all these communication networks and our people in the field are following this. If you look at the phone numbers of people in WhatsApp groups, they are all from all these different countries. So they're all connected. They speak the same language. Uh, it, it, of course, they're dialects, but they can understand each other. Yeah, and, and they are all very angry, you know. So this is, this is, this is a real uh, threat to regional stability, I would guess.
we were in Brussels to present this to the external action service of, uh, of the European Union. And they distributed our PowerPoint and a, and a, a policy brief of four mm. pages to all the EU delegations in, uh, in, the, in the region. And some of these representatives of the EU re reacted very negatively mm. uh, because we were creating uh, anxiety and, and, and all this. Spreading fear. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were like, oh, this is, this is, uh, mm. I mean, th this is, this is over the top and all these things. And a week later, there was this attack in Burkina Faso where they killed these 200 people uh, about the settlement you talked about. Yirgu. So all these people don't have a realistic uh, assessment of the situation. Is it that or uh, they, they it doesn't fit their story? No? It doesn't fit their story and they wish to deny it because yeah. they, they they would have to act upon it. And they, they don't want to say that they're no longer in charge. No, no and, and, and indeed, but in like EU do something about it, yeah. if the EU delegation knows about it, they should go to the Burkina yeah. Bay government and say you should yeah. do something yeah. about yeah. it. And the Burkina Bay government says there's no problem. There's no problem. Yeah. And for this, this attack in Burkina Faso in Yegu, yeah. Yeah, they arrested 10 people yeah. and nobody knows on what charge. And these 10 people are supposed to have killed these 200 people. It's no, not possible. It must have been an, an, an entire army who has done this. But they are just not uh, addressing the problem. They don't want it. Yeah. yeah? And then the book in Bay tell me, yes, we will, we will organize this in the customary way. What customary way? The, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's 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 put under the carpet because nobody wants to touch the whole problem of uh, these militias who are yeah. of uh, who are there in Burkina Faso. could be done if there was peace and security. It would be possible for the nomadic livestock system to cohabit with yes. the farming community. Yeah. You know? what, what would need to be sorted out to, for that to function well? Well, I would say that for the farming community it's even essential that there is livestock. Because they need the organic manure. Yes, yeah. and they need protein, they need milk, they need uh, to buy goats. Uh, I mean, in, in, in all these small towns, uh, cattle are being uh, slaughtered and sold mm. f for meat. I mean, there would be no protein without livestock. Mm. Uh, and given the agroecological conditions in the Sahel, this livestock should be mobile. Otherwise, it's a it's a it's a dead end street. Yeah, if you cannot be it's mobile, it's a ranch whose fences are too small. Yeah. yeah, the thing is that the space for this livestock is still there, but fragmented. Mm. Yeah, because farmers have started to uh, cultivate on land which was traditionally used by the Fulani to to move with their cattle. Right. 
And if the Fulani move there now, they run over the fields and then you have a conflict. Yeah. But the farmers are also cultivating in these areas because there's a lot of manure in the soil because of all the cattle passing. So there's, there's a coordination problem here. Yeah. That should be solved. And after harvest, the cattle is welcome to graze on the stubbles. Yes, but no longer. No longer? No, because the, the farmers harvest the stubbles th now themselves, themselves for, uh, for their own goats. And, and, uh, and because we, int we learned them to make compost. <coughs> yeah. This is our modern technology, yeah, the, the, to, to, to close the nutrient cycle and all this. We've uh, replaced the cows. Yes. Compost. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so uh, there's a problem there. So these biodigesters are not such a good idea? Um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm <laughs> I, I don't know, but uh, it should, should be, you should have a look at it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. addition of trees, tree management to this situation. Trees are essential for for livestock. And farmers, it could be. Yes, this of course. This could be the missing element also. Yeah, the well. trees are the missing element. Yeah. Uh, biomass in general. Yeah. But what you see is also that if you treat these uh, bush areas well, you can even increase the amount of biomass. If you manage it in a, in a way, also for fuel wood and all, the, all these other things, people. But the, 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 the standard uh, management type is to protect it, but you should exploit it. Exploit yeah. But the forest services, following the yeah. French colonial rules, have only protection on their mind, which is stupid. Yeah. Um, Could you envisage a situation in which the trees are, are uh, adjudicated, their, own, their ownership? is adjudicated in such a way that both farmers and pastoralists have a claim to it? Could they co-manage? Well, this is, this is now, yeah, why not? But, but uh, over time, there has been a whole lot of administrative reform in all the Sahel countries of delegating authority downwards to municipalities, uh, local communities, and etc. And within these local communities, the pastoralists are always the minority. Yeah. So they yeah. don't have a say in the management. So that should be part of the solution? That should be part of the solution, of political course. Political reform yeah. at the local level. Yeah. But this administrative reform promoted by the World Bank as well, and by our own government and anybody who thought, oh, this is a wonderful idea. But it has indeed empowered parts of these local communities, but the sedentary part. Yeah. And it has disempowered the, the, the mobile people because they are not part of the community. Yes. Because they belong somewhere else or they are not registered or, uh, I mean, people don't have ID cards uh, and, and so on and so on. So it leads to a situation where basically the, the marginalization and the exclusion of pastoralists is being promoted at this local level, which is also visible in the field if you go to villages. 
and you and you talk with local villagers they say that they should go mm. not realizing that uh, they perform essential functions mm. yeah? even the people who host Fulani on their land are now being uh, ostracized by their fellow villagers I've spoken to several of them mm. in one case uh, they burned down the uh, the the house of the poor guy yeah and and this is this is uh, leading to intercommunity violence and if this has become if this is Sahel white uh, you could talk about ethnic cleansing genocide and all these scenarios are there mm. I don't say it will happen but the danger is there the danger is there yes because they are also now being accused of being the jihadist, the Muslim extremist. And of course they are overrepresented there. But as I explained, there are also reasons why under pressure they seek alliances with these Muslim extremists. This is what's going on. of all of this what should we what can we do and uh, you know even if, if it's not even if it's a long shot what should we desperately try to do well in the first place and this sounds uh, counterintuitive promote agriculture because farmers should be able to have to be able to intensify production so that they need less land which leaves more space for the pastoralists mm -hmm. yeah good point yeah so around cities high value crops yeah so that the cities are also proficient and have a economic uh, lead to economic development around the cities um, open the borders again mm -hmm. yeah these national countries should open the borders mm -hmm. these ancient cattle routes which are still known should be reopened yes but that needs uh, a tremendous effort of land allocation planning yeah, and this is this should be done at the, from the local to the regional level, and this will require an in, immense effort because you need maps, you need satellite images, you need local people who can negotiate locally, you need to reform these communities in order that there are real uh, fora where the different interests can be discussed, and so on and so on. The maps are probably the easy part, is the yeah. negotiations, yeah. No? how to adjudicate those yeah. access uh, rights. Yeah. And, yeah. and my guess is that if you provide the farmers with, a, with good an alternative in terms that they can increase their production, they will all acknowledge that there is a place for pastoralists. Mm. Yeah? I mean, there are not uh, inherently, there are no primordial uh, things like we hate uh, other groups of people yeah, yeah? Uh, and most of them would acknowledge also when you discuss it when you discuss it in the right way that they have beneficial functions for uh, sedentary communities so this should all be uh, but you need to do it village by village yeah you cannot do it like with the chiefs 
because everybody should be part of this process. And the chiefs, as I explained, they played a very negative role uh, in the past, so they are not credible uh, negotiators on behalf of no, the pastors. Yeah. And if there's lack of d democracy within the village, then the farming community's chiefs yeah, also might not be the right one. Yes, right. exactly. And what you see now, and, and for example in Burkina Faso, the Mossi customary chiefs are playing a very negative role. Because they are the ones who are organizing these local militias of Kogloego, who are now creating havoc among the, the Fulani. And they tell the Naba in Wagadougou to tell the president that if the president doesn't allow these militias, he will not be re-elected in 2020. Yeah, and if you take all these militia members together, they are three times the size of the Burkina Bay army. You see? So this is completely out of control. Yeah? Uh, in Mali, the same thing happened among the Dogon and the Bambara. They organized their also, also their own militias. And they were silently supported by the national army. Yeah? And they are called hunting militias to protect the bush. But in fact, and we are protecting the village against the attacks of the Fulani. But what is protecting against the Fulani when you attack innocent people and butcher 200 of them? That's proactive defense, maybe, but, but it's not protecting against Muslim extremists. It's just revenge or whatever. Yeah? And I've seen horrible pictures on on WhatsApp and uh, and Facebook of heads being cut off. Uh, these militia men playing with the heads of Fulani. I mean, and that's also one of the things that has to be addressed to get reconciliation. Right. Yeah, uh, that that's also necessary because the, there's have been horrible things have happened. So, intensification of agriculture, uh, land allocation, cities. Try to, try to create cities which create economic growth in the surroundings. Focus on trees indeed. Yeah. How do you get productive uh, pasture lands? Pasturing in itself doesn't do any damage to this, to this vegetation. What do you mean with that? Oh, the grazing. The grazing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's uh, yeah. well known from the yeah. literature, yeah. Case de Haan and others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Case de Haan and Pierre here know, yeah, they have yeah. done all these time series studies. And, and Basically, for you need good pasture needs to be grazed. Yes. And, and sometimes even burnt. Yes, yeah. And, and, but this message has not yet arrived at the level of the governments in the Sahel as well. Because they still think, and they're still 
is this message that pastelists are overgrazing, damaging, causing desertification, etc., etc. Yeah. You find the whole uh, the whole things again and again and again. Yeah. yeah. So this th there has to be also a change in discourse. And and World Bank and 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 all the leading donors, they should lead this change in discourse as well. Yeah. And they should tell these governments, ho oh, oh, ho, pastelists have a place in society. Yeah. In India, they do it sometimes much better. Because in India, there are groups of pastelists who live entirely on the basis of harvest residues. They don't have any pasture land left. So they just move from one area to the other with their sheep mm -hmm. and pasture completely on harvest residues. Mm -hmm. yeah? And that's somehow they are able to negotiate that. Mm -hmm. yeah? So that should be possible in the Sahel as well. Mm -hmm. But I also know areas in, in central Mali where former pasture land has been occupied by farmers and nine, now 90%, nine, nine, nine of this land is agriculture, is cropland. Where do the pastoralists go? Yeah? And at present, these local militias are burning down the last Fulani settlements in this area to, to get them out ethnic cleansing. Yeah. So this should all be reversed. But and and governments should reinstate their monopoly on violence and be impartial. And as long as local police, gendarme and army are biased against pastoralists, it will not help. This has to change as well. Uh, and this is what's going on. And not only in Mali, but also in Niger, in Burkina Faso, in Benin, in Ghana. A government minister cried on the radio, the only good Fulani is a dead Fulani. Because they are basically accused of everything that goes wrong in Ghana. Uh, every, every bandit is a Fulani, every, every dead. Yeah? And in, in Ghana, this is very funny, because the Fulani are mainly hired by local customary chiefs Ghanaian chiefs who have a lot of cattle, mm. yeah, yeah, and the Fulani are damaging the crops of the constituency of these chiefs. But the chiefs remain. Uh, uh, you see, you see how. So it's very contradictory. So the chief takes the profit and yeah. blames the damage on the. Yeah, on yeah, the blame the damage on the Fulani and the local population. Mm -hmm. The local farmers also suffer. Mm. Yeah, so. And all these different situations have to be unraveled as well and addressed, because they cannot all be addressed in the same way. Yeah. Uh, in Burkina Faso, the situation is different. In Northern Cote d'Ivoire, the situation is also different. But, but every, every situation has its own dynamics, but all the dynamics are leading to conflict at the moment. Mm. And you have to find a way to break away from this conflict dynamics in every situation. If, 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 if we could turn around the discourse of those in power and responsabilize local governments 
etc. In, in the right direction, I think in, in certain areas it can still be done that you can turn around this, this, uh, this dynamics towards conflict. And for sure prevent it. Prevent it. Yeah, 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 where it still is not there. But I've seen over the past two years, I've seen things change in the south of Mali in the wrong direction. And I try to alert my own embassy, MINUSMA and all these other people. And they say, yeah, but we can't do anything. So it's time to take action. Yeah, and to say also to the local government, this should stop. I mean, what are you doing now? You're creating your own... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the rec most recent thing is that I heard that small groups of jihadists are now settling in the south of Mali to protect the Fulani, of course. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, but it can still be prevented. So it, but, it needs to but it needs to be addressed, yeah. and and you should not look away from it. Right. Yeah, and and this is this is basically what the political advisor of the commander of Minusma told me. Yes, as long as there are now not too many uh, casualties, we are not going to intervene. And you're saying. Not doing anything or doing business as usual is, is the straight to disaster. Is a, is, is a potential road to disaster, yeah. And genocide. Yeah. I, used, yeah, I, I hesitate to use the word. But, but it's not for nothing that Paul Kagame has declared its solidarity with the Fulani. He's from Tutsi pastoral origin. Yeah, and you can hear the same kind of discourses in the Great Lakes area. I've been there a lot of times as well. If you look, if you hear the discourse of Museveni about the Hamitic herding peoples, eh, the Tutsi, the Bahima, the, 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 the Banyu Malenge in, in that area, it's the same kind of rhetoric. Scary. It's scary. Yeah, and, and if you make a map of all the conflict areas in Africa, in every conflict there are pastoralists involved. Somalia, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Northern Sudan, uh, Chad, the Tubu, and, and etc. So th there is, I mean, I don't know, that's not to blame the pastoralists, but that this inherent conflict between states and pastoralism, that should be addressed. Because, I mean, we have 200 million pastoralists on the globe and they, they also need to exist somewhere. And they're using areas which are not, which are useless for any other purpose. Yeah? And they, they make tremendous contributions to national economies. Yeah, also in Central Asia and in India and in, and in Afghanistan and in Iran and all these other places. And everywhere there is an issue with them. Yeah? So. We need the 
The Cain and Abel story to end differently. Yes. <laughs> Not killing each other, but no. collaborating. That was the interview with Han van Dijk. Now, dear listener, while editing it, it started to disturb me more and more. I also lived in the Sahel for three years in Kaya, Burkina Faso, in the mid-1980s. It was peaceful. We used to take our motorcycles out and sometimes even slept under the starry skies, hoping to catch a waft of cool air after midnight coming from the desert a bit further north. To think that this area recently witnessed genocide, a Fulani village massacred, unbelievable. I knew the village. We were doing a census of our project areas and I remember that there was some discussion about whether to include the village or not. So a decade later, in the 1980s, with my two professors at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, we published an article in the Journal of Development Studies that we called The Economics of Cain and Abel. Apart from showing that pastoralism was a rational and efficient response to highly variable rainfall, the article warned for the dangers that were unfolding in the Sahel. To draw people's attention, I likened them to the first recorded murder by a farmer of a herder in human history. What disturbs me now is that we cannot tell ourselves that we did not know about the growing potential for ethnic conflict in the region, now being exploited by an outside force. We knew of it in our Dutch development project in the 1980s. We knew of it in the World Bank. We knew of it through all the research done. So why did nothing happen to prevent it? I'm still struggling to answer that question. Maybe it is too late now for the Sahel, so the least we can do is take these tragic lessons to other parts of the world and try to prevent this history from repeating itself by making sure that minorities are respected. Even when some claim that they are not really citizens or that their way of life is backward and doomed to die anyway. I am Rogier van den Brink. I do not hope that you enjoyed this podcast, but I do hope you think about it. Anansi Sisse made the music especially for this podcast. Please support him and his music. Oh,